Welcome to Lessons from the Healing Field, an ongoing journey from head to heart with Dr. Howard E. Richmond. I am Deborah Brown, and I was actually just enjoying the music again, and I'm going to ask for a little clarification about where that music comes from, but first I want to welcome my co-host, the magnificent Dr. Richmond. Hello. Hello, hello. Thank you, Deb. It's great to be here with you today. Thank you for being here, and um, I'm going to make sure that as soon as I read your short bio, because I want to make sure that anybody that doesn't know you as well as I do has a better idea of why this is important, why are you the person to carry this message, Uh, I want you to tell us about that music before we get too far uh, afield. So, um, Mr. Dr. Howard E. Richmond is a transformational psychiatrist and author, He is also an inspirational teacher and coach who greets people on their life's journey and guides them to create the best life ever. His lessons about releasing judgments and hidden emotions introduce a new language that fuels and stimulates personal growth. The Healing Field, his first novel, is a riveting account of the healing breakthrough that saved his anorexic patient's life and transformed his own. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, isn't it? It's going to be talking about that breakthrough that was really all about love that saved your patient. That's what I think was yeah. going on in that book. Yes. It's, Absolutely. It's all about love, Deb. It's all about love. Well, before we start talking about love, let's talk about how much I love that music and talk to me about where that music came from. And um, and I already know, but tell our listeners. Well, thank you for asking. And in alignment with love, when I was uh, in high school in 11th and 12th grade, I went to a um, an American school in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and two of my classmates played 12-string guitar. And I fell in love with the 12-string guitar. Now, I couldn't play guitar at the time, and I started to learn how to play guitar. And then when I went to college, I bought a 12-string guitar used for $100. I still have it. And started fiddling around. Uh, I made a composition uh, during a uh, guitar class while I was studying to be an engineer. I took a couple of guitar classes. And then 20 years later... Um, it came back to me, the music, uh, and I made two albums, two CDs. So the music at the top is from one of the musical CDs that I made about uh, 10 years ago called Soulibration. So it's about love, it's about soul, it's about music, it's about healing. It's just beautiful, and the whole album is just stunning. So uh, you can actually, um, people can actually get some of that music on your website and and listen to some of the cuts on it. Uh, so let's just let people know right about that. Uh, I mean, know about that right away, which is at howardrichmondmd.com. The music is actually available um, for for listening pleasure right there on that website. Yes. All right. So yes. love, love is not a word that. I would expect to hear much from a psychiatrist about. Now, is that a fair statement? Did I did I make that up? Is that just something that I thought was going on in your field of expertise, or 
am I on the right track? You know, in traditional psychiatry and in my formal training, I don't recall the word love coming up nor being a part of our treatment or a discussion of how that fits in. What I discovered, though, when I started going out uh, outside of my formal training into private practice and started meeting people with with uh, wounded hearts and um, broken spirits. And I saw eventually that the deep yearning and longing was for that quality of attachment uh, that we can call love. When we feel cared um, by another early on, that really helps uh, to form healthy attachments later in life. If our early attachments uh, were corrupted or anxious or uh, ambivalent, then um, it really affects matters of the heart and of the body. So that's uh, another journey deep into uh, our psyche and our early experiences about how the presence or absence of love affects us later on in life. Does that make sense? It does. And and one of the other questions I was actually going to specifically ask you was why do so many people have trouble loving themselves, it seems to me, and then I'm going to ask it another way. If they have trouble loving themselves, do they then have trouble loving others? You know, these are great questions, and it's one of the reasons why it falls out of the traditional scope of psychiatry and science, because there's uh, subjectivity, there's philosophy, there's a number of disciplines that integrate in that universal uh, message uh, of love. So why do we have a difficult time loving ourselves? That's a great topic. We've heard of the um, statement that we are our own worst enemy. And the thing is that so common, we readily believe it and then subconsciously start acting as if we are, are our own worst enemy. Now, what I like to teach is that when we become aware of these conditioned patterns, then it behooves us to start making some shifts in learning how to first be aware of how we've been conditioned to to not like ourselves uh, and then start making changes in our awareness and shifts in how we begin to uh, interact with ourselves on a higher conscious level. So why not, instead of becoming our own worst enemy, why not work on becoming our own best advocate, friend, uh, person that we care about in a non-egotistical way? Well, you know, we talk about healthy self-care, and it's not a throwaway term. It's not a box to put these things in called what you do and what I help people write books about and all that stuff. Healthy self-care is a real deal. And loving yourself is part of it. However, I know from having another conversation with you on our show that um, you can't go all the way from I hate myself 
to I love myself um, just like in one fell swoop, you know. And, and before you talked about the U-turn. So let's, let's draw a mental picture for people about the U and putting hate on one polarity of it and love on the other and talk to us about how that works because I think that's one of the coolest things I've ever heard you talk about, frankly. Okay, so um, the idea of the challenge to uh, love ourselves. Um, another little asterisk is that we can be conditioned to think and believe that loving ourselves is selfish and narcissistic. And I like to teach that there's a difference between healthy self-care and healthy self-love versus um, a infatuation or uh, an aggrandizement of the self that's very, very different. Okay, let's move on to the visual of the, of the U curve. If you imagine a huge U, the letter U, at the top left-hand side of the U, let's, ha- let's put an imaginary negative sign, and at the top right-hand side of the U, let's put a, an imaginary positive sign. So in the left half, if we look at self-worth or self-esteem or how we regard ourselves, whether we're conscious of it or not, we can all get stuck in that left half where we're disliking ourselves more or less. And we never convert over to the right half where we're liking ourselves a little more or much more in a healthy way. So the idea is take a moment to see where you land on that U curve. And let's be conscious of about it. Have we been disliking ourselves more? Have we been liking ourselves more than not? Uh, is it coming from a heart-centered place? So then we can see where our starting point is. I learned this with many of my patients who I noticed had poor self-esteem and self-worth based on their experiences as a a youth or a child where they didn't have healthy healthy care from a parent or parents. So they developed poor self-worth and poor self-esteem, and they weren't always aware of it. And so uh, one one uh, breakthrough session, one of my patients, uh, an attractive nurse, I could see she was in tremendous um, uh, inner pain and, and didn't like herself. So I asked her to um, do a, an experiment, a thought experiment with me, and to go home for the next 10 days, twice a mirror, look twice twice a day, look into the mirror and say, I'm learning how to, and I was going to say, uh, uh, love myself. But I noticed she started to instantaneously shift and withdraw. And so I switched that to, I'm learning how to hate myself a little bit less. And then she laughed and we laughed together and she said, I can do that. So the starting point for a lot of people is recognizing how automatically we can get stuck in that trap of disliking ourselves to a certain degree. 
now when we're conscious about it, the work is to, to start to dislike ourselves less and less. So we go down the left arm of the U-turn and then start to go up the right-hand side so we can start to like ourselves a little bit more. Several months later, my patient said to me, I feel pretty inside. And I gave her a high five. She was learning how to like, how to first dislike herself less and less, and then how to like herself a little bit more and a little bit more. Isn't that fantastic? I think that's fantastic. And I'll tell you what else I just was thinking about as you were describing that you. I have imagined a ball bearing that if I were to let it start to roll at, from the top of I hate myself and it doesn't get enough oomph to get all the way up to I love myself on the other side, you know, it's just kind of rocking down there in the bottom somewhere and it won't go. What if I deliberately add some joy and light into that ball bearing and then give it a shove? Wouldn't that be yeah. awesome? <laughs> yeah, I love that. I love that, it, and it's it's so congruent with how how I view that U turn um, as as a pendulum. So we could use your ball bearing and then have this um, visual of a pendulum that's pendulating. So um, if we get stuck going down the left arm and going up the right arm, uh, a little bit of oomph. For sure, we let more joy in. We met, let more levity in. We let more trust in. We let out more mistrust. And now we have momentum to pendulate up the the right arm of the U-turn. And it's you and it's universal. Fantastic. Uh, and frankly, putting it that way, seems so much more doable to me than, for example, thinking about Dr. Freud or <laughs> to Carl Jung or somebody trying to figure out, you know, what's going on in the subconscious and all that stuff. This just seems like, you know what, just make a decision that, you know, this is, that you're worth it and um, and start to try to get that, that oomph that you were just talking about so that you pendulate all the way over to as far as you want to go towards pure self-love. I think that's awesome. Right. There there's a there's definitely a practicality to this. There's a definite simplicity to this. And now a cautionary note and a warning. We can all fall in the trap of feeling frustrated that it's taking us too long to get quote there. And so that's that's another universal trap then when we're aware of, as I've said to you before, if we look at this as a long-term project that's ongoing, now it helps to modulate and manage our frustration and our expectation and our judgment that we should get there quicker or sooner. Because as we let go of those judgments, we stay on the path of 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 working on moving up that U-turn. Ah, definitely, definitely. And I can see that trap in myself for sure. 
when things I think I've got handled and then it'll rear its ugly head, you know, for no apparent reason. I'm like, no, I thought you were done, you know. <laughs> so right. I put a little face on that guy and I go, I thought you were gone, you know. <laughs> right. But, but yeah. you so, know, I'm so, okay with well, that. Yeah, we're all prone to to that that judgment, and when we're aware that that judgment is part of our programming, then we're less hostage to that reaction of judgment when we shoot ourselves, when we say, look, you should have known that and you should already be there, and then we can let go of those shoulds and say, okay, uh, I, I could, and I am, as I'm practicing this more and losing my judgment. That's how we get through those bottlenecks that in, invariably come up. Now, you know, you just reminded me of something else when you were saying I should have, and, you know, that is a that is probably an invitation for anger, for some people, I know I get angry at myself. Um, I, I don't get angry at other people very often because I am afraid to be angry at people because I'm afraid yeah. that they won't like me anymore. But I can be yeah. very angry with myself. Yeah. And um, and I'm just wondering how this juxtaposition of of hate and love and then anger and whatever is on the other side of anger. What is on the other side of anger? Or is it okay to be angry? Well, see, so where where you're (laughs) yeah. So let's walk through this. One place where you're already ahead of the majority of people is you. You have the awareness when you have the awareness that you can be angry at yourself. That's one huge step in the right direction of then the next step and how to navigate this. It starts with that step of awareness. And I use my ten fingers putting out each one, one at a time, awareness, 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 tenfold. Because we have to slow down, use that, okay, use that awareness. I am aware that I can be or I am feeling anger toward myself. When we start to realize that, then the anger towards self is conscious. Because before that happens, uh, the anger towards self can be very well hidden. It can be covert. It can be subconscious. And when it's covert and subconscious, as it as it is as it was with Lori in the in the healing field, when our anger is covert and subconscious, we're really hostage to it. Now, when we start to awaken with the awareness that we can be and we are and we have been and we're further likely to be angry toward ourselves, then we could start to put the brakes on what happens after that. Because if we don't apply the brakes, then it will be autopilot and we'll continue to be angry at ourselves and that will continue to be a growth inhibitor. So it starts with awareness, 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 tenfold uh, that when we slow down the operating system, we see that we can instantaneously become angry at ourselves uh, ourself, and then that can be a huge trap and a stuck point. Right. So what about the idea and I think Lori had the same possibly the same feelings, but I'm just going to use myself for now, and then we can talk about Lori as well, of course. But 
when I'm angry at someone else, and I if I were if I were to express it, which I will not, if I do, I mean if I <laughs> if I were to, I'm afraid that they will either leave, stop being in relationship, um, be so angry that I would not be able to um, to manage it myself. Have I missed something somewhere along the line? I mean, or is, do you know what I mean? Or is this a normal kind of, a lot of people go through this? Or is it, am I by myself here? (laughs) Let me characterize it this way, that what you're expressing is a very common paradigm and also what I would call trap. So it's a very common trap that we can all feel angry towards someone else, and then the brakes come on because we're afraid if we express that anger, then uh, negative consequences will happen. So right there, we slow that down. We see that in addition to the presence of anger, in this case towards someone else, there's also the presence of fear. Now those are two powerful emotions that can take that can take us hostage and limit our choice of how to navigate through these turbulent waters. I like to teach people healthy anger. So healthy anger, those are two words that don't typically go together. It's like an oxymoron. When we sit with healthy anger, then what I teach and show people is when we have anger, how to translate that in the healthiest way that's constructive, that's assertive, that's not aggressive or destructive. Now, that's an art and a skill that we can all learn and practice and get better at. I just realized something. I am a diplomat, and I think what I have done, because I'm just sitting here thinking, am I this? Am, am, am I telling the truth here? And I think I just realized that my truth is that I do become angry with another person, and I am able to diplomatically explain, and sometimes I almost feel like I eviscerate somebody <laughs> without them knowing that I've just gutted them, uh, but I do it so nicely that no, nobody's hurt. And I think I have been doing that, and that doesn't feel like anger to me. That feels like just taking care of business. So what about that? Okay, well, that's that's uh, now we're starting to fine-tune and, be, and become a black belt in the emotional martial arts because let's take this one step at a time. The term diplomat, there can be a very positive connotation to diplomat, that we're, we're diplomatic in our expression of our uh, emotion and our experience. That can be very healthy. The shadow side or the underbelly of being a diplomat is we can be, quote-unquote, too nice, and therefore we swallow our anger because we're also swallowing swallowing our fear and also uh, guilt if we express our anger in a way that we judge to be too harsh. So it's a very tricky and slippery slope there of how we express our anger in the healthiest way 
So we're not pinching off or swallowing or pushing down a host of other emotions. And when we check in, we usually can tell if we're doing that or not. Wow, I just had a dose of I got to think about this happening right here. <laughs> so, thank you. That was awesome. I wasn't expecting to um to kind of go there. I I did not uh yeah, I I realize I've got some work to do here because sometimes I'm thinking maybe my anger is stuffed down and it's you know, wow. Okay, well this is not about me, but well, wow. well, before, before we, before, yeah, yeah. Let's stay. Let's stay here for a moment, Deb, because uh, again, thank you for your honesty and your courage and your authenticity to be able to self-reflect and share it with us and quote unquote risk uh, the judgment that we can perceive that other people will have, or it's usually our own self-judgment that we quote-unquote should have learned this lesson long ago. Now, when we let go of the judgments and stay present, then magic starts to happen. That being a diplomat has a quality to it in survival mode. It's helped you out Though the underbelly is in thrival, when, when we're in a thriving mode, it can inhibit our growth because there's some incompletions that we left that we leave behind. That is the underbelly of of um, feeling uh, powerless, uh, feeling a little more anger and resentment that we that then that we know how to release because we're afraid that if we do, somebody will leave. That that trap that that you've talked about. So these are very common paradigms. And when we start putting the light uh, on these traps, it opens up a, a prism, as you know, I like to say, to help us get out of the prison of that trap that we didn't fully realize that we were in until we take the time to slow down to get quiet, to look and listen and go, wow, OMG, wow, I didn't see that. And now that I see this, it it opens up a new portal of transformation. Right. And now I want to say, thinking about the prism and shining some light on it, it seems like... um, a way to manage this that is different from what I do is to actually say to the other person, I am feeling angry because, and not about that person per se, but about my reaction to the circumstances seems like a better. See, I don't know. I honest to God, I don't know what. I Absolutely. Do know. You're on the right track. That's, that's right. Oh, okay. That's right. When we frame, uh, when we start to claim our reaction, then we shift out of the trap of blame where we're either overtly or covertly blaming the other person uh, because that's common that we do that. We blame somebody else for our emotional reaction. It's, It's not that simple. So when we start to take ownership, I'm feeling this anger. This is what's going on with me. So it's less about you, it's less about what the other person did, though that's a trigger stimulus, and it invites us to go deeper and then to disentangle 
some of the hidden uh, emotions uh, that can get stuck in our reaction, and now we're more fully present, more fully aware, our fear goes down, our ability to be authentic and diplomatic without it being a hiding place, that's what shows up instead. Okay, now I'm going to tell you what the rest of the fear looks like for me, and that is, what if the other person doesn't want to dance that way? I just yeah. asked it a different yeah. way. I'm still, I'm still, I'm still right there because now I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to tell this other person I'm feeling angry because I'm going to feel like I've done the right thing for me, and I'm still going to worry about the other person because that's well, the nature. Your wor- well, your worry about the other person can be excessive, and therefore it can interfere with your ability to be as clear, articulate, and authentic as you can be. Now, let's say your worry or your fear about the other person, let's imagine a dial, and let's say it's on eight, uh, on, a, on, a, on a number numeric scale, scale of zero to ten. Let's say your worry or fear about the other person's reaction is, 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 is up there. Let's imagine we dial that down to below five, so it's four or three. So there's some concern, worry, or fear, though it's not excessive. And in that space, here's where I like to walk people through. Now, it's a test. It's a test for both self and other and the relationship. Can this relationship with self and other withstand the the truth of showing up in a more authentic way? For some people, they'll get it right away. Maybe that's a minority. For other people, they'll have a reaction that they didn't expect that you would show up that way, and their initial reaction might look adversarial. However, for a great portion of those people that have that reaction, later, beyond their reaction, they have a clarity. So that's the test of a relationship. And the positive potential is, it, it like rising waters bring up all the other boats, it can help lift somebody else to a higher place to meet you then where they would not have ordinarily gone to meet you. Now, if they don't or they show up with repeated uh, trials of this that they're not able to or they're not ready to, then it may be a relationship that has had its time and that is no longer useful for the healthier evolving you. Well, that interesting because I had just written as you were finishing that sentence surround yourself with enlightened beings and delete the toxic ones <laughs> yes. yes exactly see, see how clear it is when, when, yes. when, when we when we pause our reaction and, and, and unpack it, then it opens up this portal to an intuitive, wise inner being, and then you have that clarity. Yes, exactly. So the rest of the story then becomes forgiveness because if a person has 
done something that I am feeling angry about, I would expect that there's some forgiveness kind of floating around somewhere that somebody's going to either want to give or receive. Um, or not? Maybe not? I'll let you talk. Well, let me let, let me jump on on the, the 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 simply complex notion of forgiveness. Let me jump on it uh gently for a moment. So, the way that I like to translate forgiveness because there's traps to forgiveness. A lot of people have the automatic assumption that if I forgive this person for what they've done to me, then I'm giving I'm giving the message that it's okay what they did to me. And that is not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is not a validation that somebody else's actions were okay. Um, What forgiveness to me means is we let go of our judgment so that we can release the unwanted emotions and the emotional pain like hurt, like anger, resentment, um, feelings of worthlessness, Whatever stuck emotions are there, when we let go of our judgment, when we let go of the story, that's the challenge. We let go of the story of he, she, it, they or them did something to me, so I'm holding on to that story, and I therefore I can't forgive them unless they do certain behaviors. Well, we're in a trap there. When we start to release our judgment, we start to be able to let go of the unwanted uh, emotions, the emotional pain, and that's when we start to heal and become more empowered. So is that what's going on when people who have a loved one that is taken from them by some brutal act and the family members will forgive the person who has done this terrible thing, and it's really for themselves, I'm guessing, that forgiveness is really for themselves more than it is for that other person. Yes, yes. And and when we even look at the word and uh, forgiveness and to break it up into forgiveness, so it's forgiving. And if we look at that from uh, outside in, uh, inwardly it's it's for the giving. So it's giving to self by the releasing of the judgment and what it gives to self is the gift of of healing, evolving, learning, shifting and being able to have more joy in one's life and release the pain. That's the process. It can take time and the work that we put in pays off dividends to the self. So it seems like practicing at some level it's almost like going back to the u-turn thing where uh somebody well just myself rather than talking about people out in the world that i don't know what they're doing (laughs) um you know if i feel like i can't be angry and i just put that little ball bearing up at the top of the u on the one side that's the negative polarity of that and i say i'm going to maybe own a little more of my anger and feel less afraid that the consequences will be something I can't live with. Exactly. So it's it's owning the anger and it's also owning the other emotions that travel with the anger, like fear and guilt and uh, wanting to avoid feelings of worthlessness. So there are 
a host of emotions that when we become awake, aware, and conscious, and we start to take responsibility for, that's a huge first step. So, for example, with my patient Lori in the healing field, uh, in our last podcast, she was uh, telling me, expressing to me how, how she hated me, and I was the worst doctor in the whole world because of an intervention that I did that shook up her world. And so to her to her confoundment, to her surprise, I I dealt with her anger in a very conscious way, and then I started, uh, I, I, I wrote her a prescription that said, your anger is okay, your anger is okay, your anger is okay, three times. And and with in, with unlimited refills at the bottom left hand of the of the prescription. So she looked at that prescription in amazement, in befuddlement, because in her world she grew up with so many rules, and you couldn't have anger. It wasn't right. It was wrong. It wasn't ladylike. So in her psyche, there was no room for her to be angry. And so when I, this authoritarian figure, this doctor, her psychiatrist, wrote a prescription that said your anger is okay, validating the presence of that emotion, it was a profound breakthrough for her. And it goes along with what we're saying here, awareness, awareness, awareness. So in her world, it wasn't, and in many people's world, it's not safe or okay to be angry. So we're not taught that, A, it can be healthy to acknowledge our emotions, and then what do we do with them next step? What do we do uh, with those emotions to continue our journey into the healing field? Exactly. Well, like you've said before, this is simply complex. Right now, yeah. this is just feeling like for me right now, it's just feeling complex, complex. <laughs> so. And and so then let's let's make sure we get back to the simple, simple, so that there's a balance here, so that it's not left as complex, and then we go back to what's simple. So I think the simple part, maybe you can tell me, because you got a couple of ahas there of, of what was simple. Can you can you recall now uh, what those what the simple aspect of this is? Um, actually, yes. I uh, the the knowledge that a relationship that is not sustainable through a discussion about one person or the other being angry, i.e., myself is maybe a relationship that I don't want in the first place. That's very simple. Uh, Yes, that can be the conclusion. Now, before we land on that conclusion, let's also take a step back and look at it as an opportunity, in this case for you, to get more familiar, because it's been unfamiliar, to have this approach to slow things down, to be more aware, to take inventory, that's unfamiliar. So it's a simple idea that we review our reaction because we have patterns of reacting that's in autopilot, so it's unfamiliar yet simple 
that we can start to pay more attention to that automatic reaction. So as you're doing this and you see that there's a propensity to maybe swallow or hold on to or push down uh, that that anger, certainly it could mean that the relationship that you're engaged in is in a healthy one. And before we automatically assume that, because it may or may not be to be to be tested out, we can look at it as an opportunity for growth, for evolution. So that if somebody is triggering you and making you uh, feel angry, then it's an opportunity to go inward, to see where that comes from, to see where the patterns have shown up in the past, and then to challenge and invite yourself to navigate through these waters in a more conscious way, and we can talk about that if we have time, what that looks like, how to express that anger in a healthy way, and then you'll see if that relationship can rise to a new level of conscious relationship. I think it's interesting that when you asked me to kind of frame you know, what did I kind of like, what did I just learn or, you know, how's that going to work for me or whatever. I went right to the end game. I don't want to do the yeah, steps yeah, in yeah. between. <laughs> yeah. And that is yeah. probably uh, such a common thing for me. It's so funny that I would like to jump over. I need to be the best person in the room. I need to be the smartest girl in the class. I need to just go from I don't know to I'm done and I got it. I don't want to do the work in between. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. And I'm laughing with you. I'm laughing with you and I'm applauding you because it's so common. Um I can find myself doing that as well, wanting to go to the to the conclusion and I remind myself uh, again and again, wait a minute, hold on. So that's great self-awareness, Deb. <laughs> So when you say it out loud, you start to claim it. And when you claim it more and more, it helps to put a break on so that you can see where the thrust of the reflexive reaction comes from in the past. And it may be that it's no longer serving you. And that's where the miracles happen when we engage in this level of awareness in the now. Right, and I think that's why I love the idea of the prism because I, I just wrote two words down, meditation and quiet. I do not ever go inward for very long and stay there mm-hmm. and you know work through things and, and just do that in a quiet. I'm always buzzing. I'm always mm-hmm. in action or in creation mm-hmm. or frenetic almost, and I never... Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I can feel my own adrenaline, throw, you know, literally flying through my body. I drink caffeine 24-7, and mm. I am absolutely buzzing all the time. And I mm-hmm. think I would do myself a big favor if I would do a little less of that and do some meditation and some more quiet and just let this stuff kind of filter in a little bit and let the light shine in so that I can do this work. Because I told you, I want to go right to the end game. I want to be done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And so when we look at the language that you speak, I never quiet down. I'm always buzzing. 
now we can see that those words always and never, if they continue, then they predict the future. When we replace always and never with a little bulkier yet much more effective sentence, we can say, in the past, this is how it's been. It's been so common for me to uh, not slow down and just keep on buzzing. That's how I've been in the past. So, the, so that validates how you've been, and that's a yes. And then you add an and in the present. I am more aware of how helpful it can be when I practice slowing down, getting quiet, and going inward. Well, Dr. H., even the pacing of how you just said that gave me space to breathe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. That because was lovely. It's a, very fitting, yeah. it's a very fitting affirmation for you because when you think it, hear it, and say it, then you are practicing it. And the it is slowing down your autopilot reaction so that you can observe the reaction and have more of the observer show up in the presence of the reactor. And that's a different mix. And that's a different equilibrium that is a transformational place where growth and evolution happen. Ah, what a pleasure to know you. And I'm not just saying that. And you, you know I mean that completely. And I know that you also know that, you know that I also know that you know, um, that um, I believe that you saved Lori's life. And Lori, the patient in your story, asked you to do this book called The Healing Field, A Young Psychiatrist Battle with His Anorexic Patient, Her Hunger Strike Against God, and their journey through the dark night of the soul. And it is a beautifully written book. It is, it is riveting. It is a healing breakthrough like no other because you used exactly what you've been talking about with me and you brought that awareness to her and she became your best student of these principles, didn't she? Yes, she did. Best student and also best teacher because it allowed me to learn, to grow, to evolve, and then to practice what I teach and be in integrity and see how it grows and evolves when we stay attuned to these lessons. So, yes, best student and best teacher. When well, she said I, to me... Go ahead. Sorry, when she said to me, Dr. H., you saved my life. And then she continued and said, because you saved my life, I owe it to myself to have a life. That was music to my ears. So that I wasn't the hero on a pedestal, but rather an instrument of change. So then she rose to a new level of taking responsibility for making changes in her life. And that is what she's done. And that is what this is the, the book is about uh, and that's why she said to me you must write it wow uh, um 
one of the other things that comes very clear in some of the latter chapters of the book, the later chapters, um, is the the necessity of coming to terms with God's love for her and her soul and, you know, whatever was going on for, for her uh, from her religious upbringing and some things that happened to her. So let's, um, you know, I always like for you to do a reading uh, from the book. And I want you to read um, page 154. And then we're going to talk about trust and God. So you can set the context, of course, first and then read that part for us. Okay, so first context, um, I'll start with your comment about God's love, because that can be a slippery place for a lot of people. Just those words can be supercharged. Now, in context with Lori, she was raised in a very strict, fundamental, religious orientation where there was lots of rules and the God that she grew up with was judging and punishing, and you had to repent for your sins. So that was a a, a very a non-healing place uh, that she grew up with because she felt the weight of her uh, sins and that she felt uh, subconsciously and sometimes consciously uh, very unworthy. So... That's one context to the notion of God's love. And here's how it came up in this passage that I'm going to read. We were in the cafeteria, and she was struggling with severe anorexia at age 40 and 41. And anorexia uh, is, for many people that have it, is a... Um, a very dysfunctional relationship with food where there's uh, power, control, fear, shame, judgment, all of the things that one wouldn't normally associate uh, that's in food. So she had a tremendous struggle with eating, and she uh, was getting dangerously thinner and thinner, and she was on the verge of dying. So I was in the cafeteria with her. I had gotten two trays of of food, and I'll start to read. Suddenly, Dr. Kaplan's out loud prayer, quote, God, please help Lori eat, unquote, echoed in Lori's ears. It was so different from all the prayers she knew. For one thing, Dr. Kaplan, that's my character, had his eyes open, and he didn't shout, cry out, or rise up like the powerful man in the pulpit where she grew up in that environment. Lori's confusion ate away at her. She drew a deep breath and mustered the courage to ask a lifelong question, one whose mere asking could could invoke shameful repudiation and accusations of disloyalty and faithlessness. Now she was faced with receiving the wrath of rejection or developing an unfamiliar sensation, trust. Trust had always traveled with another word, obey. Trust and obey. 
these words were knotted together in her biology and psychology. Could she trust and not feel like a subservient, lesser-than-other weakling? She crushed the blasphemous thought down with a judgmental sledgehammer. Don't be silly, she chided herself. Yet she couldn't help eking out a question to him. Inhaling bravado, she trembled as she asked, Dr. Kaplan, what in heaven's name is God? Henry set down his cup of Earl Grey tea, wiped his mouth with a rumpled napkin, and cleared his throat. <clears throat> Instead of speaking, he reached into his shirt pocket, retrieved his black felt-tipped pen, then stretched out his other hand to take a brown napkin from the pile next to the platter of food that Lori hadn't touched. Without even pausing, he began writing on the napkin, stringing together long strands of words. Lori stared on curiously. When he was done, he slid the napkin back across the table to her and smiled. Lori looked at the words on the napkin as if they were written in Greek. She brought them up to her face for magnification. Her pupils dilated in fascination. The napkin read, God equals love, total, pure, unconditional, non-judgmental, compassionate, loving, warmth, white light, nurturing, soothing, comforting, cleansing, purifying love, energetically healing, breathtaking, inspiring, blissful, and joyful love. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And I know that Lori treasures that napkin and the words that were written there to this day. And that was yes. years ago, years ago already. So, um, you know, you you said that you would make it safe for her around this time, that you would make it safe, that you would make sure that she felt safe to eat and to be. And she had to trust you. And that was a big deal for her because she really had no reason to trust anybody. It was a huge deal. It was a huge deal to uh, begin to decrease her mistrust and dare to risk trust. And so I was doing what I could learning on the fly how to make it safe. And in retrospect, there's a simplicity to this. You lose, you lose your judgment. You show up unconditionally. And it's a way of practicing compassion, unconditional love, seeing a person's deep wounds and not judging her to be defective or to be limited or to be taking too long in healing. So that was part of my lesson to how to show up that way. And in doing so, it created the space to be less and less threatening and therefore more and more safe for her to risk trusting in me. And then the other part that happened, of course, is a different relationship with her uh, and God. 
Could you repeat that? I, I didn't quite get that. Um, say, say that again, please, Deb. I'm saying her relationship with God had been, even in the um, uh, in the subtitle of your book, where you talk about her hunger strike against God, uh, she had been in a pitched battle, um, a love-hate relationship, I would imagine. Uh, not Not quite sure what God was all about, and you were able to put it into words that had never been spoken. About what God exactly. Is. And, yeah. Right. And and um, what I wrote right after that prescription, Lori read the words to herself. They were enticing and ex- and exciting, yet scary. She had never ever heard anyone describe God with such love and with the absence of fear. How could this make sense? The vice around her body loosened one ratchet. She hungrily read the words again and again. Could it be true? Could there be a God that was love? In her world, God was always watching. God was always waiting. So, yes, it it really was a lightning bolt, and it, it shifted her mindset and opened up the possibility for her that there could be a God that was a God of love and not of judgment and shame and failure and performance. That was huge for her, huge portal that was opening up to help her get out of the prison. Well, I would like to offer something that is um, kind of interesting. And I would like to read that passage again. But I would like to put a little... Well, you'll see what I'm going to do. And I'm going to change the word God to I. Yeah. I am love. Total, pure, unconditional, non-judgmental, compassionate, loving, warmth, white light, nurturing, soothing, comforting, cleansing, purifying love. Energetically healing, breathtaking, inspiring, blissful, and joyful love. Yes. Yes. And and Lori got that. It took her years to get it. And and a few months ago even Lori had said to me and then she said in public to others her discovery was that if God could be uh, a God of love, then why couldn't she be uh, of love as well? So when we start putting ourselves and looking at the potential that we can be love as well, isn't that what we all aspire to, our highest version of ourself, to be coming from a place of love in spite of uh, what challenges we face because those are always opportunities to shift uh, our reaction from getting stuck in the battlefield and to getting into the healing field where it's about love and evolving and becoming uh, more healthy and whole. That's the prism. That's the prism. Yes. Oh, yes. my goodness. And it's so great having the experience of listening to you on these episodes on our other other conversations that we've had um i just i really hope that more and more people will start to have touches of that and of course they can have it by going to the healingfieldbook.com uh which is the website where the book is for sale uh 
uh, they can certainly read the book. They can also experience the 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 new Facebook page that is being put together, which is facebook.com forward slash the healing field book. They can go to your website, which is howardrichmondmd.com. And, you know, it's just um, you will make it safe for all of us to, to play with you. And it's just so good. Thank you, Deb. It's it's a joy to engage with you in this important work so that we can share it more and more for others who are hungrily seeking ways out of the trapping reactions that are so common to us and then having these new creations to get out of the prison uh, of our past and into a prism of healthy potential uh, possibilities. Well, I'll tell you, my, I was going to say my brain is buzzing, but I'm going to say I shall be quiet and reflect for a while after we get off this, this show today because um, I found some things that are nuggets that I don't want to get away from me before I really look at them closer. So thank you again for being with me and letting me be with you, and it's just beautiful. You're so welcome, and and great job, as always, Deb, in showing up, in being present, and being authentic, and sharing your journey with me and with others who tune in to uh, this broadcast. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. And I I hear our music is is letting us go out, and that is um, more of that beautiful um, 12-string guitar that you've put together. So thank you again, and we'll see you next time, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you. Aloha. (laughs) 